Well, hello, everyone. My name's JB with Not By Works Ministries. It's Saturday, March 25th, and I am delighted to have a, a group of uh, three ladies uh, that are going to be joining me here for uh, one of our uh, sort of ad hoc discussions about uh, the Word of God and Bible prophecy and those types of things. As if you've been listening to us for very long, you know that we we make this offer and make it available to anyone. If you want to shoot us an email, if you've got a small group or a Bible study or even a church or a family group that you'd like to schedule a Zoom meeting with, uh, just uh, to talk with me about some of your questions and thoughts on anything theological or biblical, we love to do that. It's it's our privilege and, and pleasure. I learn often from the kinds of questions that are asked. And so that's what we're doing here today with Jennifer, Susan, and Peg. They're out in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, what an amazing day in which we live, where I can be sitting here uh, beneath the tall pines in my office in Colorado in the mountains, and they can be sitting in a living room in Raleigh, North Carolina, and yet we can see each other, and we can hear each other, and we can talk. And not only that, we can record it uh, for the benefit of those on our uh, podcast channel. So uh, Jennifer, uh, Susan Peck, thanks so much for inviting me into your home there. And uh, so Jennifer, I'll just say a quick introduction. Jennifer and Susan are sisters and Peg is the mom. And uh, so they're all uh, related and all believers. And uh, they listen to a lot of the same types of uh, Bible teachers that, that I listen to, uh, people like Jan Markell, Jack Hibbs, and many others. And so we all kind of share a common bond, ultimately, of the Holy Spirit, but also in terms of our theological framework. Uh, so thanks for inviting me into your uh, your family room here, and I want to just uh, turn it over to you, uh, Jennifer, to, to fire away with some questions. All right. Well, and thank you, JB, for the time that you're sharing with us today. It's very, very special for all of us. Yes. Um, so thank you. And um, so one of the questions that we had talked about is, um, can your salvation ever be lost? Yeah. Can your salvation ever be lost? So uh, the short answer is no, but let me explain okay. that in a little more detail with, with you know, a scriptural basis. So uh, first of all, uh, the, the, you know, uh, by the way, we do have a two-part video series on the doctrine of eternal security. If anyone's interested, uh, they can check that out at our online store uh, or just email me and I'm happy to, to point you in the right direction. But uh, the short answer is Jesus very plainly promised uh, again and again that at the moment we place our faith in him, we receive eternal life. So you don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. At that moment, Jesus says in John 5, uh, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Uh, you're born again, as he told Nicodemus, meaning spiritually reborn. Uh, your spiritual DNA is changed in that moment. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Um, Paul tells us in, in Romans that uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We become a child of God, John 1, 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. So something changes instantly the moment a person places his or her faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for his sins. Um, so if, in fact, you, that life, as Jesus calls it, is eternal, then by definition, it can never be lost. I mean, if it can be lost, it's not eternal to begin with. Uh, Jesus said in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has, present tense, everlasting life. He didn't say, 
has the potential for everlasting life yeah. or the possibility or the prospect, uh, he said, you have it right then. So uh, once a person is saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives permanently. Uh, and we now have this new nature. Uh, Paul describes the battle between this new nature and the old nature as a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, and sometimes we don't do the things that the Spirit of God convicts us to do. Uh, Paul describes his own struggle in Romans 7, in which he very uh, passionately explains, look, sometimes I don't do the things I know I should do. Sometimes I find myself doing the things I know I shouldn't. And then he goes on to say, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin? And then he gives us the answer, by the way, in chapter 8, which is to you know put on the new man, to walk in the spirit, not after the flesh. So the, the point is, there is no sin that an unbeliever might commit that a believer might not also commit if he or she is catering to the flesh. I mean, um, believers, they can look like unbelievers sometimes. They're not supposed to. It's not healthy. It's not normal. It's not what God calls us to do as believers. But frankly, every time we sin, even in in the, uh, you know, little sins, and so-called little sins, right? Galatians 5, people are always quick to point out the biggies, you know, the sexual sins, the murder, the, those types of things. But he goes on to talk about covetousness, anger, jealousy. Yeah. So, right. you know, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we are a work in progress, that we are working out our salvation, not working for or working it up, but working it out over time to be conformed to the image of Christ. And as we do that, Sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back, but uh, we never have to doubt our identity in Christ. Nothing can separate us from, from that. We are a child of God. And, you know, obviously that brings up a lot of other practical questions. You know, what about those who completely fall away from the faith and, and right. depart from the faith? Well, the Bible addresses that. You know, Paul in 2 Timothy 2.12 talks about how even if we get to the point where we are faithless, meaning no, have no faith at all, we've lost our faith, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so if you think about the analogy of being a spiritual child of God versus, you know, the physical birth, like Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about, if God forbid one of our children in, in life should have a falling out, become estranged, a, a prodigal, disown us, change their name, want to have nothing to do with the Hicksons, it doesn't change who they are, and, and a simple DNA test would prove that. In the, in the same way, spiritually speaking, if a believer for whatever reason, maybe they got away from the Lord, they got out of his word, they were influenced by bad teaching. Maybe they had a life crisis or a tragedy that really they got bitter about instead of giving it to the Lord. For whatever reason, if a believer turns his or her back on God, it doesn't change their spiritual DNA. Uh, there are consequences for sin in the life of a believer, including practical you know, consequences on earth, a loss of blessings, God's discipline, loss of rewards in the, in the eternal state, but nothing can change who we are in Christ. Okay, so even if you denounce Jesus Christ, you have already been changed if you have accepted him, and so even if you denounce him, he does not ever 
take our salvation away. Never. He can't because it's a we we've made we've been given an ontological change in who we are. We are now in Christ permanently. And and again, the Bible addresses that very issue in 2 Timothy 2:12, where Paul says, Look, even if we are faithless. God remains faithful. He can't deny himself. He can't deny one of his own children. Um, and by the way, we have examples too. John the Baptist, you know, died yeah. in a lonely prison cell, denying whether Jesus is the son of God or not, you know, and yet he's in heaven today. So um, did he deny it or question it? I heard you say that on whatever podcast that was, where you said even, the, even John the Baptist questioned God, but did he really, did he deny it? Well, I mean, it's a distinction without a difference, because if you don't okay. firmly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, by definition, it means you doubt it, you deny okay, it. Yeah. You, know, you can't, you know, believe and not believe the same thing at the same time. You either believe it or you don't. And by the fact that he was questioning, is he really the one, it showed that he didn't really believe it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, denounce might be too harsh of a, a word to describe it. You're right. But um but yeah, the, the fact is, um, the Bible doesn't condition our eternal life upon believing in Jesus and continuing to believe in Him. It conditions it upon believing in Him at a punctiliar moment in time. And Jesus makes that clear in John 8 when He says, "You in that moment you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. He couldn't say that if it was a contingent thing where you had to wait till you live the rest of your life to see where you end up. You know? <laughs> And and we could never have assurance. Yeah, yeah. We and you know and we would wonder. We would all we would never know for sure. You know right. because right. I mean we don't know the future. I mean I think those of us sitting here right now would confidently say and I'm and I'm you know and should confidently say that we Jesus is our Lord. We serve Him. We're going to serve Him to the death. But many a people have said that and and something happens in life that. Uh, causes them uh, to deny it. Another key passage would be the whole book of Hebrews, where you've got believers in the late 60s AD, Jewish believers, who were being tormented and persecuted, and in many cases martyred, burned at the stake by Nero and his regime, 67, 68, 69 AD in that time frame. And the whole point of the, the book of Hebrews is to challenge them not to give up the faith, not because if they do, they go to hell, although many people mistakenly take these passages that way in Hebrews, but rather because there's a great promise of reward for those who hold fast to the faith until the bitter end, even in the midst of great persecution. And that's what the whole book's about. He says, do not cast away your confidence. Uh, Hebrews 10, I think it's uh, 26, somewhere in there. Uh, Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. They were contemplating, you know, sort of abandoning the Christian church and not associating with fellow Christians because that would identify them as Christians and then they might be arrested. So they were becoming secret Christians and essentially denying publicly their right. faith in the Lord. But that didn't change their heart. I mean, who among us, if God, if, if some evil person put a gun to our head and said, deny the faith, might not deny it. I mean, I, I'm confident and I hope that I wouldn't, but what if someone puts a gun to my wife's head? Right. Or my right. daughter's head or my granddaughter's head. I mean, right. it can be pretty. And I'm thankful that the grace of God in my life does not depend upon my answers to those questions. Yeah. Jesus gives, he said in John 10, 28, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. He doesn't say as long as you defend me in public, you know. Right. So, <laughs> so if one of the things that I think until you said it in a recent message, 
I had never heard someone talk about it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not because you you will go to hell. It's because you won't receive blessings not only in this life, but also in our eternal life. The rewards. Right. right? Yeah. And yes. Nobody teaches that, Jamie. No, it is really one of the most neglected doctrines in scriptures, the doctrine yes. of eternal rewards. Uh, yes. We have a whole chapter on that in my book, What Lies Ahead. Um, and I also have a, a document that I'm happy to email out if people will email us, just say, hey, send me the eternal rewards, you know, notes. Um, okay. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, very clear. Every New Testament writer addresses rewards. Um, several key passages, you know, 1 Corinthians 3, Romans 14, um, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, also Luke 19, Jesus, right before he goes into Jerusalem on Palm, what we call Palm Sunday, it was actually a Monday, but we celebrate it in church history on a Sunday, the, the Sunday before Easter. But on that day of the triumphal entry, right before that, he he talked to the disciples about how he was going to go away for a while. And while he's gone, they need to be faithful with what he's entrusted to them. It's the parable of the Minas. And uh, then he comes back after a long time, and he holds them accountable, and he rewards them with positions of service in his kingdom based on how they live their life. The gospel, right? What's that? You said recently, the mina, that's the gospel. It's Well, I see the mina as your life of service as a Christian, the Christian life. Okay. Yeah, because they're already believers, so they've been entrusted with this mina. Right. And he's going to say, hey, what are you going to do with it? And and in the story, uh, the, they all get the same thing. So they all have the same thing. It's not like the parable of the talents, which is totally different in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25. In this case, everyone has the same thing. And he says, hey, get busy. Be busy while I'm gone. Then he comes back, and each of them has responded differently to this life of service. Uh, one of them uh, had a tenfold you know, productivity, one a fivefold, and one did nothing with it, buried it. And to that one, he says, you're not going to get anything in the kingdom. You'll get in, but you won't have a reward. And the others are rewarded proportionate with how faithful they were with their mina. Um, and then uh, the, the evil citizens that didn't want this king to reign over them, they're the ones that are kept out of the king. That's a reference to unbelieving Israel who rejected Christ, you know, in the, in the context there of Luke 19. But yeah, I mean, I've heard people suggest uh, that the mina is the gospel. I mean, obviously it's a parable, so the text itself doesn't explicitly say, you know, this is that, you know. So, um and right before it, you've got the story of Zacchaeus, who uh, hears the gospel. But I really think in the broader picture, Jesus is just kind of hinting to his disciples that, uh, you know, look, you need to be faithful. The time is not yet. There's going to be a delay. You just be patient. And while I'm gone, you know, be about the Lord's work, which would, as you mentioned, would include the sharing the gospel, of course. I have a question. So this relates to false prophets and not the spirit of the false prophet, which is your, you said your next book is going to be mostly on AI. And we've, we've all read spirit of the antichrist and, and given it to multiple people. Oh yeah. Both, both volumes you got. Yeah. 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 Yes. Mom has, read, Mom has read the first one, not the second one, but we've read both. We've read both. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I yeah I appreciate that very much. I, it's such an important you know topic, and it's, it's really 
kind yeah. of becoming my, it's what I spent 15 years really studying and burdened about. And yeah, the next one is going to be uh, about Satan, about the Antichrist's sidekick during the tribulation, whom the book of Revelation calls the false prophet. So I'm going to call it uh, the spirit of the false prophet. First John 4, same basic passage that I used as the premise for the first two. Uh, first, verse 1 says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so the main job of the false prophet is going to be to sort of oversee the control grid, to require everyone to worship the beast, the Antichrist, uh, to you know control commerce. And so the subtitle is going to be Hacking and Tracking Humanity. And uh, I've been doing a little bit of preliminary work on it already, but I, you know, I can't wait to to really in earnest start pouring out the pages and get that done. Hopefully this summer we're targeting October as a release date, um, but uh, you know I think it's going to be important to kind of see what role the, the the future false prophet plays in the end times. Absolutely. Well, in light of that, so. False prophets, we know we have we've had those always, and we have, I think, a lot more of them today. <laughs> and those people, even if they're setting themselves up to be believers, and I know only God can judge their salvation, but if they're leading many astray, but they're doing it all under the guise of evangelical Christianity, how can I mean? Either they weren't saved to begin with, or they've become transhuman, so they can't be saved now. I mean, I don't know. but Yeah. Well, so a couple of things. Uh, certainly, there are false believers out there. You know, the Bible talks about that in John 6. Um, uh, and I believe on any given Sunday, churches, sadly, are filled with people who think they're Christians, but they're not. Yeah. But we always want to be be clear, you know, our passion at, at Not By Works since we were founded in 99 is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel message. Lately, we've talked a lot about the urgency aspect with the end times and all the setting of the stage and all that. But I always go back to our, our, our core value, which is the clarity and accuracy. So it, for those who are unsaved and, and these false prophets who, as you said, some of them are unsaved, we want to be clear that it's not because of what they're teaching or anything. The only reason anyone is unsaved is because they've never believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. So uh, I, we, we believe uh, the Bible never uh, tells us to look at our behavior or our works to validate whether we're saved, nor does it tell us to do that with others. Now, I know there are a lot of passages that people mistakenly take that way, in my view, like Matthew 7, for example, which is right on point, talking about false prophets, um, and, you know, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and some some others. But I think if you take a closer look at those in context, Jesus nor Scripture never tells us to examine our lives to tell whether we're Christians. We are Christians if we do the one thing that the New Testament tells us to do more than 160 times, very plainly, and that is believe. And it's not a matter of works, not by works, obviously, which is our, right. <laughs> our key um, theme, uh, Titus 3.5. So, so going back to the question of the false prophets, um, I do believe there are many false prophets who may be believers. In other words, being a believer does not guarantee that you're never going to teach something wrong. <laughs> 
I mean, believers can be led astray. That's the whole reason Jesus tells believers to beware of false prophets. You know, in right. 1 John 4, he's writing to believers. John the, the apostle is writing to, you know, brethren and my children. And, you know, repeatedly he he talks about, calls them believers. And, and he says, watch out for false teachers because you might become susceptible to that and you might believe a lie. And so believers uh, can and do, sadly, adopt false beliefs based on bad teaching. And then many of them turn around and teach it. So a false prophet is not a synonym, technically speaking, for unbeliever. I think the question of one's eternal salvation has to be answered the same way for every person, and that is, have they trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation? So uh, a moment ago when you mentioned maybe they were never saved to believe with, to begin with, they may not have been, but it's not their behavior that tells us that. Because right. as I said, there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit, right? So if I've got two people standing in front of me, uh, and both of them, let's say, are involved in illegal drugs and profligate behavior and just living a debauched lifestyle, one of them may be a Christian, one of them may be not, or they may both be non-Christians, or they conceivably could both be Christians. I mean, obviously, when we come across someone like that, the first question we want to dive into is their their spiritual life. We want to find out, hey, tell me how you came to know Christ. And if they can't give a biblical answer to that, then we can reasonably conclude on the authority of Scripture that they're not a Christian. But it's not their behavior that tells us that, because, you know, uh, you know, believers can unfortunately do a lot of bad things and look like unbelievers. And so I think the church has done a real disservice to the body of Christ, especially in the Reformed arena, because they make it all about heaven or hell. And every time they see a person living a sinful life, they hastily conclude they're not a Christian. And so they tell them, you got to get saved. And the person goes, well, I, I thought I already was saved. Well, no, obviously you aren't, or you wouldn't be doing this. So you got to do it again. And you got people getting saved again and again because they've been convinced right. that salvation is this bilateral contract, and they didn't keep their end of the bargain, so they must not be saved. But it's just a free gift. You receive it. Now, what you do with that, you know, is another question altogether. And, and unfortunately, some believers don't are not good stewards of this new life we have in Christ, and and they live, you know, sinful life sometimes for a prolonged time. And again, there are serious consequences for that. Um, but as far as false prophets, you know, I, I think uh, there's a, even a higher consequence for God's people who lead others astray. And that's why James says, be not many teachers, because um, we're held to a higher standard. And and in the case of some of these, uh, you know, false prophets out there, which I believe probably right now, 90 to 95% of churches, at least in America, are apostate. It might be higher than that in some places like Europe, yeah. but it, it could be lower than that in some places where the Spirit of God is really working right now. But I just, and that's just my dead reckoning. I don't have any, you know, scientific proof of that, but I really feel like the church today, and I, I talked about this Tuesday night, we're in the midst of our, uh, the, the time is now a prophecy night series, and I just started a section on setting the stage ecclesiastically, where I'm talking yeah. about manifestations of apostasy. And I've got another one of those uh, coming up this week too. But um, so, yeah, I, I'm kind of, I think I probably answered more than you wanted, but 
go back to your question. Where were you headed with the discussion of false prophets? Well, actually, you could talk about it all day and we would just sit here because we love hearing it from so we're sure it's based on God's word, not somebody's opinion. Um, and I have a question related to that too. But so all of these things now that are um, like the Jesus Revolution movie, which is apostasy. And, I mean, I believe, and the Chosen series, and the you know all there are so it just seems like so many people that we know who are believers or pro who profess to be believers and. We know a lot of women who are really, really deep, uh, or they've studied the Bible a lot, like that verse says, you know, the men come in and they're led astray because they were always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. It seems like that's happening all around us. And a lot of them will defend, even if biblically you can explain to them how, how these things totally miss the mark of scripture and I, you know, art is fine, but if you're, if you're portraying Jesus, then in my, I mean, art's not fine if you're portraying Jesus and you're doing it completely Probably. against, right, the biblical record. And they yeah. defend the, the actors and they, and they will defend them more than they will defend Jesus and the word of God. Yeah. So, you know, and you've probably heard me say this, but, you know, we we've raised six children. Our youngest is fourteen, and you know, if you've raised children, you know that when they're real little and become toddlers and mobile and start crawling around, they'll you got to keep everything out of their way because they'll put anything in their mouth. And <laughs> I think right now the church at large, uh, even if they're believers, is is one great big giant nursery where people are just going to swallow anything without discernment. Um, now I do think we have to. Uh, speak in terms of degrees of false teaching and false doctrine and false prophets. Yeah. So a couple of passages that we've already sort of mentioned in passing, but in Matthew 7 at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is rebuking the unbelieving Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, when he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And that's the passage where he goes on to say, uh, by their fruits you shall know them. And many, many Christians turn this passage completely on its head and make it mean the exact opposite of what it really means when they'll point to sinning Christians and they'll say, see, that person can't really be a Christian because look at their behavior. I saw them get drunk or I saw them do this or they're living like the devil. But in the context, Jesus very plainly says these false prophets are going to look like sheep. You will not be able to tell them apart except for what they say. And that's what the fruit is. If you go to Matthew 12, just a few chapters later, Jesus explicitly ex uses the same analogy, by their fruits you shall know them, but he explains what the fruit is, and the fruit is what comes out of your mouth. And going back to Matthew 7, it's a perfect you know analogy for Jesus to make uh, for false prophets, because after all, what do prophets do? Their whole occupation is to speak. And so Jesus says, don't look at you know, what they wear. They might have all the right clothing and the the big, huge phylacteries around their neck, and they might, you know, you know, give money to the church, and they might outwardly appear to be like they've got all their, you know, I's dotted and their T's crossed. But if you listen to them, 
you'll soon find out that that's the voice of a wolf, not a sheep. And so I think that one, you know, even though in the context he's talking there about unbelieving Jewish Israel, and then he goes in the very next chapter to commend the faith of a centurion, a Gentile, and continues to criticize the lack of faith on the part of the Jews who should know better. I think the application still is very relevant for us today. But then skip all the way to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and in the Olivet Discourse, just the day before he was betrayed, he multiple times says in Matthew 24, you know, there are many false prophets that are going to rise up in that day just before my return. And so they're here. <laughs> you're here. Exactly. That is a sign of the times. Um, yeah. uh, and he goes on to say many false Christs and false prophets will show great signs and wonders to deceive. Um, and Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse says Jesus saying the same thing. So, um, and then another key passage is Second Peter, verse 2, where Peter says, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So, you know, not all false teachers are unbelievers, and not all of them have an evil, uh, harmful motive, like the false prophets that Jesus was describing as wolves. Um, some of them are just deceived themselves. They're self-deceived. They think what they're teaching is right. For example, you know my view on the Calvinist view of the yeah. gospel. I think it's wrong. I think it's yeah. you know clearly wrong. But I don't yeah. for a second think that you know your average Calvinist teacher is some kind of Luciferian that's out there to intentionally destroy the church. I think they've just been taught wrong and they've connected the dots wrong. I respect them. I just have a strong disagreement with them. And because it is related to the gospel, which is what matters most, I you know I have trouble recommending them. So I think we need to keep a balance there. And so going back to things like uh, the Passion of the Christ or the Chosen or Jesus Calling the book or uh, the yeah, Jesus Revolution yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, some of those um, are, I would call them sort of well-intentioned dragons, you know, to coin a, or to, to borrow a phrase from, uh, I think it was Marshall Shelley's book years and years ago. Uh, I think they are not, you know, I mean, obviously the devil is using them perhaps unwittingly to promulgate, you know, promulgate false teaching. And, but like, especially with the book, Jesus calling, I mean, if you go through there and look through it, the, the comparison between what the author uh, there and the name escapes me at the moment, uh, but Sarah Campbell, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Sarah Young, Sarah Young, Sarah Sarah Young. Young. no, Sarah Young. Yeah. What she is suggesting that people do is comes right out of the playbook of psychics and mystics. I mean, right. almost verbatim. Right. So now, majors. does she know that? I don't know, but she's accountable either way, as James tells us, and she ought to know better if she doesn't. And well, she changed. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. She what now? She changed her. She used to have in the first edition. She explained how a prologue. Yes, her prologue. She explains how she's guided by this spirit, not little else. Oh wow! And she eventually changed that because I think she got some pushback from believers that saw through that. Yeah. And yeah, I think I remember that. It's been a long time since that book came out and, and created yes. quite the stir, but it, it's still popular, unfortunately. And uh, and so, and I'm not giving her a pass by any stretch. I'm just saying there are agents of Satan who kind of work willingly for the Luciferian elite that are out there infiltrating churches, intending yes. to lead them astray. And then there are unwitting 
you know, Christians who should know better, who, who, because they are not well grounded in the word became sitting ducks for that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's, that's who I, you know, focus on. That's who I care about. That's who I hope will wake up. And, you know, in our books, we, we really are targeting uh, two groups of people. Well, I guess three, if you think about it, uh, unbelievers who, because of all that's happened in the last few years might have more of an openness to recognize that there's something bigger at play. And in so doing, they, they might, you know, these books might catch their attention and then they're going to hear the gospel. Also, secondly, you know, weak believers who, you know, same kind of thing, they may already have believed the gospel, but they're not where they need to be with the Lord. But then, you know, the other thing is even some strong believers and this really has turned out to be one of the biggest audiences for the book, um, which is up at almost 20,000, by the way, now between the two of them. So, which is unbelievable. If you'd have told me that a year ago when the first book came out, I would have said, there's no way. I just, I never even had aspirations of that. I just mainly wanted to leave something behind, you know, that is, is, uh, you know, explaining what I've come to understand for the last 15 years uh, for my kids and grandkids, if the Lord doesn't come back and, you know, maybe wake up a few people along the way, but by God's grace through the people like Jan Markell and uh, Prophecy Watchers and, and David, David Fiorazzo. Fiorazzo. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's where uh, we heard you the first time. And yep. as soon as I, I remember where I was when I heard that and I said, I'm going to order that book right now. And then I told Jen and mom about it. And it was Stand Up for the Truth. Yeah. Well, and by the way, speaking of Stand Up for the Truth, you know, I love David. I've been on there 30 or 40 times now every month for two and a half years. Uh, and he's a dear friend. He's been to our church to speak. I've worked with him in other conferences. Uh, but, you know, his program has a quite a wide diversity of people on there. <laughs> yeah. And he has people on there that I, you know, personally would not have on. They they are preaching a works-based Calvinistic gospel, telling people that that it's about a commitment. Uh, just recently, he had someone on who uh, had some good stuff to say, but when it came to the gospel, in my opinion, they fumbled the ball because they were telling people they really need to. to it's a commitment. It's a it's a it costs you something, and you got to really bring something to the table. And if you don't, you're not really saved. And so, uh, you know. But again, that's not you know, David, that's just some of his guests. And right. uh, he he reaches a broad range of topics. And yeah. sometimes theology makes strange bedfellows. You know, there are people I would agree with, especially when it comes to end time stuff, wholeheartedly, but they're not as clear as I, I wish they were on the gospel. Um, but, you know, that's another way I feel like the Lord is using not by works is he gives us the opportunity to rub shoulders with and connect with people and, you know, maybe have an influence there in a, in a small way. So, but just to close the loop on the false prophets thing, um, you know, first John four, one, uh, you know, which I've spent a lot of time in the last, you know, couple of years is believe beloved, be, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they have God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, from our perspective, it's not as critical that we identify whether these false prophets are believers or unbelievers. It's more critical that we identify them as false prophets and not fall prey to what they're teaching. Now, if we have clear reason to believe they're not a Christian because of their own testimony, which is really the only way we can potentially have an indication. Again, you can't look at someone's behavior and make that determination. If you see someone who claims to be a Christian and they're living like 
you know, a, the devil, one of two things is true every time. Every time someone who claims to be a Christian and lives like the devil, one of two things is true. Either they're a Christian or they're not. You know, you cannot, you just, you cannot summarily dismiss their identity in Christ based on their outward behavior. Because, I mean, if people had looked at Peter in that snapshot of his life yeah. and denied Christ and even cursed him, many Calvinists today would have hastily said, well, there's no way he could possibly be a believer. So we're only looking at snapshots of people's lives. Granted, sometimes it's longer, but, you know, the Bible doesn't put a timetable on it. The Bible never says, well, if you live like the devil and don't live out your Christian faith consistently for six years and three months, after that, that proves you're not really saved. I mean, there's no timetable. <laughs> so, uh, so, but anyway, you know, what we want to do is you know, you know, be be aware and on guard against false teaching, and hopefully uh, insulate ourselves through the Word of God. So, um, I my profession is a counselor, and um, thankfully, I'm able to do all of my work virtually. That way, I can connect with much many more people in different areas. Um, but my, I mean, I'm specific, I work with the criminal justice population and the, I'm getting to the point or the question of, um, well, one more thing in counseling, generally speaking, the materials that people gravitate towards, um, the tools that they gravitate towards are very new age, extremely new age. I, that I've been convicted lately. I mean, of I cannot in good conscience promote new age philosophy. I don't care what it is, not in, you know, yoga, go stretch, but don't do yoga. Right. Don't, don't say those words that right. they say. Um, and so my question is, do you know of any resources that I can use that on what kind of counseling it is though You're well with the criminal the... justice population um so i mean i state. have i have state regulations but i've never read anything that says i can't say anything about jesus ever um, yeah i mean so my you're more of an expert on on counseling obviously than than i am but in 35 years of ministry and and especially in my academic years we we at the school i was at we launched a bachelor's degree in biblical counseling that was intended to be a, a stepping stone for folks to go ahead and get their masters in and certification in, in professional counseling so my view is i i'm uh more of a non-integrationist than an integrationist if those words mean anything to you so i believe there's a lot of humanistic secular uh freudian type uh you know, false teaching in the psychology world. And that's kind of like the blind leading the blind. But at the same time, I don't go to the other extreme that some people do and suggest that you should never have counseling. You just need to get in the word of God and figure it out for yourself. And you and the spirit of God, will, I mean, I think that's silly. I think, yeah. uh, I think we can, the God can raise up, you know, men and women who, who are specifically gifted at interpreting the scripture and can build into other people's lives through the scriptures, either in informal one-on-one, -on -one, you know, sort of the nuthetic concept uh, or in a formal setting. Um, and so I, you know, used to have some connections with uh, the uh, the Jay Adams group, the new, what used to be called Nank. It's got a new name now, but um, 
My problem with that group is they they tend to take it to the extreme. They're very Calvinistic, and they they tend to hastily conclude that their clients who are involved in any type of habitual sins are not saved, and uh, and I think that's just uh, terrible. And so and that's a over an overstatement. Not every you know, if you're part of the Nuthetic organization, please don't email me and, and get offended. I know there's. <laughs> I don't. I don't mean to paint with too broad of a brush. I know there's some good counselors in that group, but having studied it pretty at length, attended some night conferences, uh, visited privately with some of the founders of that organization, I've just I have some issues with their overall framework. Even though I believe in their overall philosophy, I just think their framework is a little bit too narrow for my what I see the Bible teaching. So, um, so I you know I think uh, it comes down to you know, two steps. Number one, if you're dealing with someone who has an addiction or has serious issues, you, you, which is- I am another, an addiction. I have a yeah. license in addiction counseling. Yeah, that's your world. So, you know, to me, step number one is find out where they are with the Lord. Are they a believer or not? And again, the only way to find that out is to ask them their testimony. And if they say, oh, well, I've always been a Christian, or I was baptized, or I went to church for years, or, you know, I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Baptist, you know, those are all red flags that say they may not really understand the grace of God and, and the means of salvation. And so that's when you shift into evangelistic mode and you just basically begin to tell tell the story of the gospel and explain to them that, you know, they, they were all sinners. We all need a Savior, that God sent His Son Jesus, the perfect God-man, to take the sins of the world upon His shoulders and die in your place, pay your penalty on your behalf. He rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and He, therefore, is the only one with the power to forgive sin and give you life. And he offers it to you freely if you'll simply trust in him and him alone for it. And so, you know, but once you've kind of run that trap and and you kind of either share the gospel or you feel like based on what they've articulated, they probably are a Christian, then you shift into the mode of sanctification, which is helping them recognize their identity in Christ, recognize, uh, you know, that they, as a child of the king, do not need to live like paupers. It's it's all Romans 6 through 8, really, that whole section of Romans. Um, remember, Romans is, is really uh, such an incredible book about God's righteousness and the child of God, but it's one of the easiest books to outline. You know, chapters 1 through 3 are all about the sinfulness of mankind. We're hopeless. We're helpless. As I've often said, if you, if you pick up Romans, and you get interrupted after the third chapter and can't finish reading, then you're going to be the most depressed person ever because you're thinking, <laughs> what's, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm curtains, right? Chapters four and five, uh, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God provided the answer. God provided the, the solution to man's problem. That's chapters four and five. And if you'll trust in him, you can be saved. Chapters six through eight are all about the believer and the believer's walk. And uh, how we can should should walk in the new nature, not the old nature, and that's where we get Paul's famous uh, chapter seven description of his own struggle as a Christian. Again, Calvinists will take that passage as you know, suggesting that was Paul's pre-conversion life that he's kind of telling a story back in time of what it was like before he came to know faith. Context completely destroys that you know interpretation. I, I don't know how people can can hold that view. Uh, but that's chapter 6 through 8. Chapters 9 through 11 are all about Israel. God uh, puts it on Paul's heart through the Holy Spirit to answer the question that some of the Jewish believers might be wondering, well, what about the nation of Israel and the promises God made to Israel? Has he forsaken them altogether? 
And Paul says, absolutely not. And he explains very clearly that at the end, the deliverer will come out of Zion and usher in the kingdom as promised. And then uh, chapters 12 to 16 are all about practical admonition for the church and ways we should interact with each other and just real practical teaching. So, um, you know, how to be transformed, Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. Uh, so back to chapter 6 through 8, that's where I would zero in. And, you know, in my uh, the biggest book that I've ever uh, produced is Freely by His Grace, which I was uh, honored and privileged to co-author with uh, Roy Zook and Rick Whitmire. Roy Zook's with the Lord now, uh, but uh, Rick Whitmire is a friend. And we were the general editors, and it has 16 chapters, including uh, from 13, I believe it is, different contributors. I wrote two chapters in there, but there's a couple of chapters in there that I still believe to this day are the most important works on the Christian life and, and the doctrine of sanctification for the believer uh, anywhere in print. Uh, and so I would highly recommend, you know, that, uh, that resource. It's, you know, it's not the kind of book that you have to sit down and read cover to cover. It's more of a resource with its, it deals with sin in the Christian life, the progressive sanctification of the believer. It deals with salvation, the gospel, dispensationalism, and why that's important as a hermeneutic to understanding the gospel correctly, um, eternal security, um, all kinds of stuff. So, um, so, you know, what I, as far as resources, you know, I believe, I believe in the all-sufficiency of Scripture, as I'm sure you do. So, you know, uh, there may be some good books out there by like-minded believers that can help, you know, augment, but I would start with the Bible and just walk your clients through uh, understanding who they are in Christ, that, you know, all sin begins in the mind, and if you if you are living out the flesh, it's because in that moment, you've forgotten who you are. And, you know, it's kind of like as parents, sometimes we'll, you know, when our kids are younger, we, you know, they might act up and we'll say, you know, don't do that. That's no way for a Hickson to act. You know, you know well, <laughs> what we're basically saying is that that's no way for a child of God to act. You know, why having been set free from sin, Paul says, would you want to walk back into the prison and close the door behind you? You know, when I teach on that, sometimes I'll show as an illustration a clip from uh, Andy Griffith where Barney Fife gets locked in the cell like he <laughs> frequently did. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's a perfect word picture of what it's like when we, having been set free from sin, go back and, and you know, make ourselves slaves of sin again. And, you know, the other analogy that Paul uses in uh, Colossians and Ephesians is the new man, old man, and the new clothes, old clothes. You know, if you've got this whole closet full of brand new, you know, Armani suits, why would you want to go wear these old tattered, torn, ripped clothes like the old man did? Live like a king and don't allow the devil to suck you into his dark underworld of, of unrighteousness. So... Well said. Thank you. Is that, is that sufficient on that one? Yep. You think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my thing is I'm going to have to really just, you know, and pray about how to kind of transform what I do, which is currently, um, you know, I do have things that I have to go over with clients, but I do it in my own way. And so I feel like the, I have slowly been able to incorporate um, 
some biblical principles into my groups, which is really my my goal these days. Because yeah. I just don't to do that. Yeah, you're in a tough spot. Anyone working in a public arena, public schools, or like you said, the the prison system or criminal justice system, you know, it's it's tough. Um, but you know, I would certainly take whatever liberties you can and 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 pre- yeah. preach, proclaim the word of God. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. All right, we have another topic. I don't know how much time we have or how much time you have. Um, I'm okay Bible, for now. Okay. Bible translations. Oh, yeah. So, you know, in Revelation 22, I think it's 18 through 20, it said, whoever adds to the words of this prophecy, I will add to him the plagues in this book. And whoever takes away, I will take away his name from the book of life. Yeah. So in the context, I will take away his part from the book of life. Um, Yeah. So, you know, in the context there, he's talking about the book of Revelation in particular. So, um, but the broader discussion of uh, translations is one that I I love to talk about. I've I've taught on it frequently. We have all eight part uh, streaming series called How We Got Our Bible, eight eight different videos. and at the oh, end, of, okay. at the end of that, I get into kind of the differences in the English translations. But uh, the short answer is, or you know, to kind of give a fairly abbreviated answer, uh, obviously the Bible wasn't written in English, right? So every translation is just that. You know, the Bible was written uh, over a period of fifteen hundred years by forty different human authors on three different continents and three different languages: Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so um, the Bible uh, in the first century was was written in Koine Greek and then translated into Latin and then, you know, eventually into English. Um, and around the, you know, 16th century is when we started beginning to see some of that. Of course, the King James commissioned Bible was 1611 was when it was uh, finished. Um, but then with the onset of the... Go ahead. Which translation do you, so I guess my follow-up that's also in the book of Revelation, and then I have a question in Genesis, is when he's writing the letters to the churches, to the church in Sardis, to the church in Philadelphia, in Thyatira, and then in most Bible translations, it also says to the church in Ephesus, but no, in Laodicea, but in the King James, the New King James, those are the only two I've found so far that say to the church of the Laodiceans, which was that last church, which is our last church age that we're in, you know. And I've heard it taught before that that is the most accurate translation of that because that is when the church becomes the church of the culture, is in that last church age and in Laodicea at the time. Yeah, so that's uh, that's an interesting question. So I, I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but and I get into this in my book, "What Lies Ahead," my eschatology text. Uh, but I don't take what 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 you just described is called the panoramic view of the churches in Revelation, panoramic oh, really? view of church history, okay. because the text doesn't tell us that. So that's quintessential allegorizing. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I think it's intriguing. It sort of does appear that there's some parallels. But we cannot bring our, you know, fantastical, and I don't mean that pejoratively, Our we can't bring our fantastical right. 
interpretations to the text and superimpose them on the text. So when I teach Revelation, and as I describe in my book, the, the Revelation 2 and 3 are just seven literal letters to seven literal churches in the first century, and uh, each of them has some commendation and some correction and some rebukes. Um, you know, I don't have any problem by way of application in saying that the church today, especially in America, is making the same mistakes that the Laodicean church did in the first century. But I don't think we can say dogmatically that God, the Holy Spirit, intended for us to see in chapters two and three some type of corresponding church history uh, viewpoint. Because okay. um, the text doesn't say that. I mean, that's just, we have to be honest about that. Uh, but I know good scholars disagree. The late J. Dwight Pentecost, uh, who was one of my professors, uh, in his great book uh, that ought to be on everybody's shelf called Things to Come, he took that view, as did a lot of dispensationalists. But I tend to be a little more rigid in my literal grammatical historical hermeneutic and just sort of let the text speak where it speaks. Um, but that said, um, you, you know, it, it, the in my opinion, the the best English translation today is the New King James. And let me explain why. And, and they're all they all have their strengths and weaknesses as a translation. Um, but when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know, um, this this is uh, you know it was inspired, infallible, without error. It's exactly what God wanted us to to know. And then as we tr as we uh, translate that into other languages throughout the world. You know, obviously we're Americans, so we think in terms of the English translations, uh, but the same challenges exist in any language of trying to communicate what the Holy Spirit was communicating to the original audience in a way that maintains the integrity of, of what was written. Um, so, uh, first of all, we didn't really have a multiplicity of English translations until we didn't start having it until the early 20th century with the rise of higher criticism and the discovery of some ancient manuscripts that had been tucked away in a library in Alexandria for years and years and years. Um, and that sort of gave rise to a bunch of new translations beginning in 1901 and then all the way up to, you know, modern times, the seventies, eighties, nineties, and so forth. Um, when you're choosing a, so let's talk about the old Testament first. The old Testament is pretty much, there's not a whole lot of dispute that goes on about uh, manuscript fragments and textual, you know, variances and things in the original text, because the scribes in the Old Testament were so meticulous that they just, they, they were a little more careful than some of the New Testament scribes. Um, and so, you know, the 66 books of the Old Testament are pretty uniformly understood, uh, and there's not a lot of di difference in terms of what manuscript you translate from. But there are two two questions, really two fundamental questions to consider when choosing an English Bible. And these are what manuscripts are they translating from? Mm -hmm. And then what is their technique? what what is their method of translating? How you know, what are they trying to accomplish? Um, so, because we don't have the original manuscript of any New Testament book, we don't have it like preserved in a glass case with a stamp that says, thus saith the Lord, this is the original where Paul wrote, you know, what well, we have are copies, right? And in the New Testament, we have, last I checked, well over 6,000 manuscript fragments or even whole um, 
what's called codices or a codex is like a bound book. Like if you have like this is a, bi a bound book like we have it today, they would call that a codex in ancient times. And so we have thousands of fragments and in some cases full codices uh, of books. And within that, because of the doctrine of preservation, God has preserved the original text, but sometimes there's scribal mistakes. You know, just as if I'm writing on a white marker board and I'm quoting John 3.16 and I, in my haste, I leave out a word, you know, that doesn't impugn the inerrancy of Scripture. That's just me right. making a mistake. Same thing was true with the, the scribes as they copied. They didn't have Xerox machines or digital technology. They had to hand write them. And so I get into all of this in that series, How We Got Our Bible, and I give examples in Scripture of what's called scribal errors. Um, and so uh, basically, there are two schools of thought when it comes to the New Testament. The most popular by far uh, is what's called the critical text and or the critical text family. And that school of thought says whatever manuscripts are the oldest, that's probably the original, and that's what we should translate from. Um, the other school of thought says whatever we have the most of... <laughs> That's probably the original, and we should, you know, it's called the majority text view, and we should translate from that. And so let me explain what I mean by those two phrases. So let's say we have, just to simplify it, let's say we have 10 manuscript fragments of Mark chapter 10. Okay, we, we have a lot more than that, but let's just say we have 10. And let's say eight of them are identical but two of them have maybe a slight word left out, you know, in one verse. Well, let's say the eight that are identical are from the oldest one of those is, let's say, from the sixth century, you know, it's 500 years after it was written. But the two that are slightly different, let's say they're from the third century. Mm. The, the, the critical text family is going to say, well, those two even though there's only two of them, that's probably what the original author wrote because it's closest to the original. The majority text advocates, uh, which is, includes me, by the way, was going to say, no, God most likely preserves the original in the majority of what's called extant or e existing uh, manuscripts. Um, now, that's an oversimplification, and, and my colleagues in the academic world that do this for a living and study what's called textual criticism for a living, they're probably you know, scoffing that I made it so simple, but I'm trying to keep it pretty, pretty simple. There are exceptions and there are pretty obvious rules uh, to, to recognize when, you know, there's scribal errors. And by the way, of all the manuscripts that we have, 98.5% of them agree. And the 1.5% of variation is all in non-doctrinal sort of really inconsequential minor a, a, a pronoun left out here or the ending of a word changed here that kind of stuff yeah i have a question how about in genesis 3 which is talking about the seed yeah the first seed where it's not capitalized it's genesis 3 15 yeah and i Pro put M2, right you know that verse yeah the protevangelium so that again you're what you're asking about is english translations so in in greek and in hebrew uh, well, let's talk about Hebrew first, because that's what we're dealing with in Genesis. Uh, there were no vowels at all. They didn't have the vowels didn't come along until years and years later. Uh, they just it was a spoken language, 
and they just had consonants and they could tell from the consonants how it was supposed to be pronounced. So, uh, and they didn't have capitalization. Same thing in oh, Greek. Like so, Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Yahweh is the personal name for God. Um, and they would not say that. So whenever they would see in the scrolls, the, the letters uh, for the three letters for Yahweh, uh, Vav, Hate, uh, or Yod, Vav, Hate, uh, in Hebrew, uh, they would say instinctively Adonai, and they would teach their children to say Adonai out of respect for, for God in his personal name of Yahweh. And then years later, when they put in vowel pointers, and the church then began to uh, transliterate those and create an English version of the Old Testament, they ended up creating a word Jehovah, which is actually not in the Bible, but it's an English creation of sort of conflating Yahweh and Adonai together. Uh, but it, when you see Jehovah, it means Lord. And in good English translations today in the Old Testament, whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's mm -hmm. a reference to Yahweh. If you see Lord with just a capital L, that's Adonai, the Hebrew word for Lord. So, but back to Genesis 3.15, uh, I believe uh, this is an early reference to ultimately the Messiah who would, you know, defeat right. Satan. And so I think it's appropriate, as the New King James does, to translate, I mean, to, uh, yeah, capitalize. capitalize seed, you know, when, it, when it's between yeah. her, your seed and her seed. But that's not a textual issue because it's uh -huh. not capitalized in the Hebrew text, but they certainly would have understood it to be a reference to, you know, uh, to, to Christ, ultimately, to the Messiah, the Christ. Um, so back to English Bibles, um, you know, uh, every English translation that we have today, with the exception of the King James and the New King James, uses as its basis to translate from the critical text, the, the one that, you know, they tend to believe that the older manuscripts are guaranteed to be the original. Um I, for reasons that I won't go into here because it gets pretty granular, but I do go into it in that series, uh, I disagree with that. Um, I'm not saying that it's always the majority you know, of manuscripts that represents the original. Sometimes the older manuscript is accurate. I think you have to take each of them on a case-by-case -case basis. But I do believe uh, in, philosophically that God is more likely to preserve the original reading in the majority of the manuscripts. And uh, mm -hmm. So, therefore, that leaves me just New King James or King James. Uh, and between those two, the King James, with, with all due respect for the King James-only advocates who might be listening to this, um, you know, there's no question that Erasmus, who's the one who is, you know, put together the Greek manuscript from which the, new, from which the King James was translated, uh, he inserted stuff that's not found anywhere else. I mean, he made stuff up, literally, uh, like the famous Kama Johannine in First John, uh, what is it, 5. Uh, let me look it up real quick. First uh, John 5, let me see if that is. Yeah, First John chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse uh, 7. Uh, where the King James says, and the New King James for that matter, because it's such a famous verse, the New King James just left it in, but at least it puts a note in there. Um, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Well, that's not found in any manuscript fragment of the thousands that we have of the New Testament. 
anywhere except oh, in one wow. manuscript that Erasmus put in there. And so you'll see a note that says, um, you know, the ancient manuscripts omit the words in heaven all the way through the end of verse 8. And he put it in there to try to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, which, of course, we don't need that verse to defend it. The Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity fairly plainly. Um, but anyway, um, you know, the there are other problems with the original manuscript of the King James, and that's why I like the New King James, because it comes along and it has more recent scholarship, and I think it's substantially the same as the King James but it takes out the Elizabethan English, puts it in more modern English, but yet still maintains the integrity of the word-for-word uh, -word translation. Um, so that's that's the first of the two questions of what manuscript are you translating from? And because I tend to believe in a majority text approach, uh, I prefer the New King James. But that's not something that I would you know be dogmatic about or part company over. Many, many conservative uh, Bible teachers you know, use the New American Standard or other, you know, English Bibles, which, you know, they're, again, 98.5% of the time, they're going to be identical. Uh, and so I wouldn't, ha you know, I wouldn't stumble over that. But the second question, I would, the second question is more significant. And that is, what is your translation technique? And a lot of modern English Bibles translate based on what's called uh, dynamic equivalence, or thought for thought, idea for idea rather than formal equivalence or word for word. Um, now, I readily admit that, you know, in many cases, it's difficult to find a word for word equivalent between two languages. That's just goes without saying. But that shouldn't prevent us from trying, because a translation, in my view, is intended to communicate what the text says, not what it means. And so, as an example, the new the new international version is very paraphrastic, very much a thought for thought. It really resembles more of a commentary than a translation. And so they would do things like, uh, for example, in the Hebrew culture, there's an idiom uh, where the nostrils flare is intended to indicate anger. So the text might say the king's nostrils flared. Well, a formal equivalent translation like the New King James or New American Standard, for that matter, is going to say the king's nostrils flared, because that's what the text says. And I want to know what it says, and then I'll use good Bible study methods to help understand it. But the NIV is going to say the king got angry. Well, that's true, but that's not what the text said, right? So I just would, would for study anyway, for, for you know good Bible study, I would stay away from paraphrases and you know modern paraphrases. You know, I'll quote from them every now and then, if I, like I would a commentary, if I think they really describe what's going on in the text well. And, and so I'm not like legalistic, and I don't think, you know, the, you know, all English Bibles except the New King James or of the devil or anything crazy like that. I just think for study, I, I'd rather know what the text says, and then I'll, you know, work it out through, you know, good Bible study methods, observation, comparing scripture with scripture, word studies. No. It's dynamic equivalent, and what was the second one? Formal equivalent. Formal. Yeah. So that's and word so for that's word. The one that the New King James does. Yeah, and New American Standard, and there's a few others out there. Uh, they all, you know, with greater or lesser success. Like the ESV, for example, is fairly formal equivalent. But my problem with it is 
the, it's the entire editorial board that put that together is Calvinist. Right. In fact, it's often called the elect standard version, tongue in cheek, um, because of their Calvinist background. <laughs> and especially the ESV study notes, I would not recommend them at all. Um, and I really don't recommend the translation because there are going to be some places where it, it betrays, you know, sort of a Calvinistic bias where they insert words that aren't there. Um, lots of examples I could give you, but one that comes to mind is John is James 2.14, um, where, uh, and they're not the only ones that do this, but it says, what doth, what doth the prophet, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but does not have works, and they'll say, can that faith save him, I think. Let me, I'm going to look it up real quick, just to be sure I'm not misquoting the ESV. Uh, so the ESV says, yeah, can that faith save him? Well, the word that is not in the text at all. The, the Greek text just says, can faith save him? And that's the way the King James and the New King James translate it. Uh, the NIV says, can such faith save him? And the reason they do that is because in their interpretation, they believe James is talking about this alleged notion of spurious faith, which again, the Bible never uses that phrase. The Calvinists made that up. But they believe that you have to have the right kind of faith to really get you to heaven. And if your faith is deficient, if it's the wrong kind of faith, you're not going to heaven. And we believe that it's not the kind of faith that saves you. It's the object. And, you know, James is not talking there about eternal salvation. He's talking about talking to believers about the practical benefits of having works with your faith and save, even though most people read that verse and assume he's talking about eternal life and heaven or hell, save there does not mean go to heaven. Save just means be rescued from the death-dealing consequences of sin, the practical consequences of sin. That's James's whole point in his letter. He, he talks about in chapter 1, he tells his readers, look, stop sinning because sin's going to lead to death. Sin, when it's full-grown, is going to kill you. Stop sinning. Behave. Stop showing partiality. Stop you know, you know, living in a way inconsistent with your Christian faith, because faith without works won't save you. It won't keep you alive. It uh, has nothing to do with heaven or hell, but because they believe it does, when they translated that Greek verse, they put in the word that faith. Can that faith save him? As if James was talking about a different kind of faith than Paul, and he wasn't. Only one kind of faith in Scripture, uh, but but uh, there's different kinds of save. Uh, in fact, 58%, and I have an appendix of this in the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, uh, which really gets into uh, the whole issue of false gospels. Um but there's an appendix that deals with every occurrence of the Greek verb sozo or save. It's 108 times. And 58% of the time, it has nothing to do with heaven or hell. Like when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. Wow. Yeah, 58% of the time. Yeah, more than half. So you see it all over the place. Uh, you know, when the disciples were on the boat on the Sea of Galilee and, and the storm came up and they said, Lord, save us. You know, they didn't mean, Lord, you get us eternal life. They meant we're about to die. <laughs> And Paul, when he's, I'm, I'm teaching through Acts right now, and, and next, uh, not this week, but next week will be in uh, chapter 27, the, the journey to Rome, and and the, sh the boat gets shipwrecked, and a couple of times mm -hmm. they talk about it in there where they use the word save, and he says, when all hope that we would be saved was lost. Well, Paul wasn't saying when all hope that we would go to heaven was lost. Save just means rescue. <laughs> <laughs> and in the context of, you know, eternity, it means rescued from the penalty of sin. So James is basically just saying, look, faith 
if it doesn't have works, it's not going to rescue from rescue you from sin's consequences on earth. You're, you're going to face some tough times. It won't have anything to do with your eternal destiny, but uh, it, it will affect you. Yeah. So there are a couple of translations that um, one that showed up, I think it was back in the 70s, the Living Bible. Yeah. And then now there are people in the, the NAR and churches that are using the passion, right? Right. The passion. Yeah, those are both highly paraphrastic. Uh, right. Again, I wouldn't recommend them as a Bible to study from. They, they, they consider them like commentaries. You know, hopefully, you know, our really? listeners know. Yeah, consider, just look, think of them like a commentary. So hopefully our listeners know that not all commentaries are created equal, right? If you pick up the Benny Hinn commentary, it's going to be quite different from, you know, the Schofield Reference Bible or the Charles Ryrie <laughs> Study Bible, right? So, uh, you know, uh, you ought to learn to study the Bible for yourself, and sometimes commentaries can be helpful if they are written from a good, you know, perspective. But they're not translations. The Living Bible is not a translation, in my opinion. It's more of a paraphrase. And there are times when you know it might actually capture the essence of what is happening in the text pretty well, like a commentary might sometimes. So I'm not throwing the baby out with wow. the bathwater. I'm not saying that, you know, every single word in the living Bible is somehow wrong. In fact, I, I think uh, I quote uh, from Proverbs 22, 3. Uh, I think the the paraphrase, let me pull it up here, from the living uh, Bible. Let's see if I can find it here. Uh, maybe it's this one. Uh, is actually a pretty good way to say it, if I was going to explain what uh, what the what the passage means. So Proverbs 22, 3. Um, yeah, a prudent man foresees danger and takes precautions. Well, that's not a word-for-word -word translation, but it's a good explanation of what I think that proverb in Proverbs 22, 3 is saying. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the Living Bible, I would just consider it, you know, uh, one person's you know, sort of commentary on, or, you know, explanation or paraphrase is, is really the, the right, the right word of, uh, you know, of, of the Bible. So. Okay. All right. I have one more question. Do you have a question? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can ask you questions all day. We can all ask questions all day, but um, it's kind of in light of this discussion. What about, I've never read, like the, what is that? Uh, it was no little time, probably, until we're done here. I really even want to read it. Um, your internet connection's unstable. Yeah, it was cutting out for a second there, but I think you're back now. Okay. Okay. I'm not even sure I would want to spend time reading it because I feel like we have not that much time left. So and, I and reading on... reading what did you say? That's the, the part that's cut out. The apocrypha, which I've never oh, yeah, read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's one part of the question, and the other is: Did in your book, in any of your books, do you discuss the his what has happened in history between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? Yeah, not, uh, I don't necessarily have anything on that other than, you know, old course notes and stuff when I taught bibliology, but nothing, nothing published. Uh, but the Apocrypha, 
uh, is, you know, uh, to me, it's a historical book like Josephus writings from the first century, not inspired, not infallible, not the inerrant word of God, but like any other, you know, Greek scholars from that day or other, you know, Old Testament uh, writers from in the BC times, that, that it can provide some insight, but, you know, you can't, you can't uh, take everything in there as being guaranteed to be true. So okay. uh, I think we learn a lot from, exa for example, from the books of Enoch. Um, I can't hang my hat on it with the same degree of authority that I can the Word of God, but it is a fascinating read to sort of supplement, possibly, what we learn from the biblical text about things like, you know, the Nephilim, the fallen angels, the... Uh, being bound up in Tartarus, uh, the fact that there right. might possibly be another archangel besides Michael. Again, we can never say that with certainty because the Bible doesn't say, but Enoch suggests there might be. So it's just read it like a history book and with all of its warts and flaws, and and then it can provide some some insight perhaps. Okay, good. Um, and the one that the DVD that Gary Stearman and Ken Johnson did on the end time prophecies in the book of Enoch. Same thing. I mean, I haven't listened to it. But. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love that stuff. I mean, I, I hope in my next book to address some of it. I've intentionally steered clear of it because it's such a controversial topic, you know, Genesis six and the Nephilim that I, even though I've talked about it and taught about it, I've just never put it in writing because you know, I just, I want to reach a broad audience and I don't want people to pigeonhole me, but we're getting to the point where, where I believe we're so close to the return of the Lord that it, you know, we need to address these things. So I love yeah. Gary Stearman. I, I, as you know, I've been on his show and think yeah. very highly of him. Obviously any two scholars are not going to agree on everything. Um, but I, I find him fascinating. And Mondo Gonzalez has really become a, a good friend and a man I highly respect. I had him on yesterday. I don't know if you yeah, guys yeah. listen to that. Yeah. But I wish I could do more with him, but I know he's so busy and I'm trying to respect his time. But we are supposed to do some interviews when he gets back from Israel for Prophecy Watchers. But, you know, they've and oh. L.A. Marzuli, you know, there's another one who I'm not going to agree with on, you know, a lot of things, perhaps, uh, especially when it comes to soteriology, although I have not actually talked to him. I'd love to talk to him about that. But I respect him immensely. And he's got so much knowledge about you know, the spiritual battle that I write about in my latest two books. And um, so I would highly recommend that DVD, uh, uh, Gary Stearman and Ken Johnson. Uh, I haven't watched it myself, but, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, they, they uh, and, you know, and I've got other friends and colleagues who've written more uh, from a really solid traditional dispensational background about the book uh, of Enoch. Uh, and um, I, I wouldn't be afraid of it for sure. Okay. I had, do have one last question. What can we do besides pray for your ministry and your family? What can we do to help your ministry, if anything? Well, you're Jennifer, you're so gracious. Uh, you know, prayers are the big thing and we really feel them. I mean, we, we know that the body of Christ is praying and, 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 you know, you'd be surprised how meaningful, encouraging, emails and texts and things are, because it just seems like the Lord brings those across our radar at just the right time when we're struggling with something, or maybe there's been attacks. We get, you've heard me talk about it. We do get our share of negative emails. That just comes with the territory. Uh, the, the more the Lord uh, broadens our 
uh, ministry, the more, you know, law of large numbers, right? You're just going to get more of that. Um, but I think, you know, prayers are, are the big thing. Um, and then helping spread the word. Um, you know, we are, uh, I just believe we're living on the cusp of, of the end times. I think the rapture is very, very soon. Um, and I want more, as many people to, to hear and know about, um, the information in these latest two books, uh, as possible. I hope I don't get to publish the third one, you know, the, the next, yeah. it's, not really a, it's not really a part three. Uh, it's, it's going to be the same cover art and the same basic, you know, spirit of the false prophet, but it's, it's technically just a, a third installment, not a volume three per se, but I, I hope I don't actually get to that because so, so spread the word, you know, that's the thing is let people know about these books. We've given a ton of them away just because, um, well, the Lord will bring someone across our path and I sense an open door and I'll say, Hey, can I send you something? And I'll send them a copy. Um, did that just recently with a, a funeral I was at. So, you know, uh, spread the word, let people know we're here. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, prayers are a huge part of it. Um, we make our living from the gospel, as the scripture, you know, tells that, you know, certain elders do that. Not all elders were paid in the New Testament, but some were. And uh, and God's, we've been doing this uh, for 30, almost 35 years now. My wife and I have been married coming up on 31 years. Uh, and um, so uh, pray for our church. We're really excited about what God's doing at Plum Creek Chapel. We just uh, announced uh, Thursday that our founding pastor, uh, John Schrag, who had retired when I came on board to be the teaching pastor, uh, is coming back in an associate pastor role uh, because we've oh. grown so much. We just oh. we have we need help. You know, we need. <laughs> and he came along right at the right time, and I love him to death. He's been a huge blessing to me. You know, for three years, I've frequently called him and cried on his shoulder and talked to him and gotten wisdom <laughs> and counsel. But now he's formally back on board. He's going to help us with a lot of the pastoral care items and other things. And we're just delighted to see God provide that. So not by works, Plum Creek Chapel, they're both growing uh, at unprecedented rates. And uh, and we're thankful for that. But it brings with it a whole new set of complexities and stresses and asks, obstacles. So just your prayers and, you know, and uh, support are, are greatly appreciated. Absolutely. You got it. You um, got it. And thank you so much for taking yes. your time to talk with us today. What a blessing. Yeah. You guys are awesome. Now I do have one, I do have one critique. I, I feel like uh, next time Peg needs to not talk quite so much. <laughs> you just <laughs> we try to keep her quiet, but it's yeah. so hard. Yeah. She, she actually does have one question. She mentioned as we were walking in that she read to our dad today out of volume one, where you talked about 9-11. Oh, and yeah. He, and he's former, I mean, he served in the military. Those were the most important years of his life. And oh, yeah. He, he loves our country and he loves the military and he loves our mom and he loves us. But, and he loves the Lord. But he does, and he's he had the veil pulled off about a lot of things in the last two years or yeah. three years. But, um, mom, do you... Do you have a question related to that? I know you brought it up right as we were walking in. Maybe how you can help. Uh, well, I just uh, wanted to tell him about what I was reading. And he, he, he just says he does not believe that. Yeah. Let him read the book. 
<laughs> Let him read yeah. So obviously, I, you know, I don't get into the details of 9-11 in the books. I just make, I right. deal with it in the, in the introduction because that's what woke me up to reality and started me down this rabbit hole that 15 years later resulted in, or 16 years later now resulted in these books. Um, but I do make passing references to it. And, you know, what I would say is, you know, I understand, I completely get it that not everybody's, you know, awake to the reality of what really was going on there, but there are tons of resources out there. I mean, scholarly, peer-reviewed, journal articles, uh, ent entire groups of thousands of engineers, pilots, architects, I mean, top level credential people, you know, government officials all throughout the world, government officials within our own government. So this is not a fact really in dispute any longer. Six of the 10 9-11 commission members actually came out later and admitted that there's, you know, something fishy about this. It was an inside job. So I don't claim to have all the answers, but what I can tell you is that the official narrative that the government has put out, according to which 19 basically teenagers or young millennials wearing turbans under the direction of a wealthy dialysis patient living in a cave <laughs> in Afghanistan, were man managed to hold the mightiest military in the history of the world at bay for two and a half hours on a bright, sunny day and managed to bring two, uh, rather managed to bring three high rise buildings down at free fall speed into their own footprint by flying planes into two of them. Uh, that official narrative is simply not accurate. Uh, there were really hijackers. There were really hijacked planes. There were really terrorists, Muslim terrorists, all of that. Absolutely true. But uh, the, the the details of the narrative, there's a lot more to it. And it has all the hallmarks of a classic false flag. I do have a whole chapter on false flags in volume one, which I highly recommend uh, people read because it explains that this is something that is still taught to this day in the American War College. It goes back centuries. It's a very, very prevalent technique in warfare uh, and that's exactly what 9-11 was. So, but I wouldn't get hung up on that. I mean, I, I don't, you know, the, the Luciferian conspiracy as the Bible teaches and as I've outlined in these two books does not rise or fall on the veracity of the 9-11 narrative. That's just one piece of the puzzle. And, you know, believe me, I've got enough in both of those books that very few people I'm finding are going to agree with everything in the books because, you know, they just haven't studied it, or maybe they have an honest disagreement with me on it. So, you know, or they some, don't want to, JB. Right. They yeah, just sometimes, yeah, sometimes right. that's it. They may not want to, but you know, and I may not be right about all of all of the pieces that I weave together. I'm sure it's a work in process as I continue to oh. study. You know, the other details may come to light, but there's enough in there that clearly any rational person can understand that. There yeah. is a secret cabal working at the behest of Satan to try to take over this world. So absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're thank so you again. For you. Keep doing what you're doing, yeah, and we're, we're all trying. Yes, and we will disseminate the books. Yeah. Whoever will take them. Yeah. You bet. Awesome, and uh, appreciate you guys. Let's do it again sometime. And want to close out by reminding our listeners that you know if you have a group that you'd like to get together just for a Q and A. Shoot me an email. We'll put something on the calendar, and we'd love to do it. And uh, in, in the context of uh, disseminating the books, I do want to mention that we we offer uh, bulk discounts for like bookstores and other people that want to use it as a Bible study or small group or whatever. Uh, you know, if you'd like to get more than ten 
let us know, either call us or shoot me an email. And uh, my daughter who works for us will reach out to you and, and let you know kind of the different discounted rates. So got to get the word out. So yes. thank you guys. God bless you. And we will, uh, we will see you next time. Yes. Thank, thank you. you.